Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. I want to see science serve a useful purpose to improve the standard of living for all people. Why is anyone fighting food advance? A very small percentage of the world's population is fortunate enough to have the luxury of turning down food. We've arranged a society based on science and technology. There was nobody who understands anything about science and technology. You can't build a peaceful world on empty stomachs and human misery. You're listening to Talking Biotech, a weekly podcast illuminating issues in agricultural and medical biotechnology. Your questions and concerns are addressed using a science-based approach with the goal of driving discovery to application with communication. Now here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulton. And welcome to another issue of the Talking Biotech podcast. It's the weekly podcast that deals with science and technology in agriculture and medicine with respect to biotechnology and some of the related issues along with it. And today I'm live at the American Society of Animal Sciences Conference in Baltimore, Maryland. And we're here to discuss a couple different issues around glyphosate. And we'll be speaking with Dr. Dan Goldstein from the Monsanto Company. So, uh, well, welcome, Dan. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so I should state up front. And I, when I started the podcast, I wanted to avoid working with anybody or interviewing anyone from companies because of the accusation that people always levy that um, I'm just a mouthpiece for big ag. And I think I've demonstrated in the first 90-whatever episodes it's been that uh, I'm kind of a – that, that's not the case. We've talked about technology and the strengths and weaknesses and very balanced. And I've recruited people with, um, with dissenting opinions to take part in the discussion but have had no takers. And we've talked about risks in, uh, in lots, of, lots of cases. So I think we've established this kind of fair and balanced, uh, to hate to use that term, but um, <laughs> background. But uh, so the idea is, is I think that I'm depriving the listeners, depriving the lis- listeners of the experts who work in this area when you eliminate the companies. So I'm glad to have you. I hope to have uh, someone from Simplot soon. So we're going to go down that path at this point. So thank you very much for your time today. Well, thank you. So uh, your, your title, you're the Distinguished Science Fellow at Monsanto Company, and you're also a pediatrician. Yes. And a pediatrician first, right? So, yes. So tell us a little bit about your background and why a pediatrician is something you would want to have at a seed company. Well, I started out in, in pediatrics, uh, but I developed an interest uh, while I was training, both in pharmacology, the study of drugs, and, and toxicology, um, the uh, the study of, of 
poisonous substances and, and adverse effects on the body. Uh, and ultimately, I ended up pursuing toxicology as a full-time career. I was in private practice uh, out in Colorado for many years before Monsanto recruited me 20 years ago. When they brought me into the company, it was primarily around pharmaceutical safety, uh, agricultural chemistry safety. Um, but as the company evolved and over the years, I became more and more involved in safety related to plant biotechnology. Uh, and uh, and continued to support glyphosate over the years. So my real focus within the company is fundamentally the safety of our products. And that's really shifted, as you mentioned, from uh, the mission about well, 20 years ago was the company was more of a uh, chemical company than it is now. Now it's mostly seeds, with the exception of the Roundup herbicide, which is still a trademark under their control, right? Is That's correct. And we have a limited number of other herbicide products. Um, most of them relate in some way to our Roundup Ready platform uh, or for consumer. We control the Roundup lawn and garden brands. Um, but the focus really in, in chemistry has been on glyphosate products for a long time. And so that's it's a really great stepping off point because we've had a lot of discussions about glyphosate and its relative toxicity, the claims, its mechanism of action. And uh, what what is happening today with regards to, you know, your exposure to this topic? I mean, it seems like it's gone crazy with respect to discussions on glyphosate. It, it, it's it's gone berserk. It really has. And it's fascinating to watch from my perspective. Uh, so t- to give you some background on, on my perspective, before coming into Monsanto, I did a lot of forensic toxicology. Uh, among other things, I was a, a defense expert uh, in the breast implant litigation. And in the breast implant litigation, in the end, they had no science to support their allegations at all. It bankrupted a major American company. It cost billions of dollars. Most of that money ended up with lawyers. And when the science was all said and done, there was no cause and effect relationship to support that litigation. Now, you know, lest you think that I'm just a defense guy, I did a lot of plaintiff's work on benzene. I did a lot of plaintiff's work on asbestos, where we clearly have cause and effect relationships and some real science to work from. I call them like I see them. What I'm seeing with glyphosate uh, at this point is the debate just keeps getting louder and louder and less and less rational. Right now, most of that is focused around cancer allegations based on uh, an opinion from IARC, a, a, a one of four branches uh, of World Health Organization that assesses cancer risk of chemicals. They classify glyphosate as a, a probable human carcinogen. Uh, the other three groups within World Health Organization say that there's no evidence of cancer, and regulatory bodies around the world, including the European Food Safety Authority, the US EPA, the Canadians, the Japanese, everyone else who has looked at this has said there's there's no uh, evidence that that glyphosate causes cancer. Um, Many of the individuals involved 
uh, in the IARC decision had a long history of uh, anti-pesticide activity. They're certainly entitled to their opinions, and, and that's fine. Um, but other voices were completely excluded from that conversation and the way that it evolved, and they're invited scientific expert as somebody who uh, is from a, uh, a, a, an environmental organization and has a long history of anti-pesticide activity uh, and, and has been roundly criticized, most recently by the German Agency for Risk Assessment, their BFR. Um, what I'm seeing looks very much like the breast implant litigation. We have uh, science being distorted by the litigation process. With the breast implant litigation, it probably would have been thrown out early by the judiciary, but there was so much public outrage created uh, that that became impossible, and it created a demand for these cases to get to, to the courts. Mm -hmm. That's what we're seeing with glyphosate right now. They are trying to create enough public controversy to drive these cases into court, and they have no science to stand on at all. Yeah, and in a lot of ways, they've already won, at least in the court of public opinion, because when you can put these uh, advertisements on television soliciting attorneys, you know, or assist, um, soliciting plaintiffs, where they say, oh, the law firm, if you've ever used Roundup in your yard, you, and, you know, you, you've had cancer, this may be, you know, those kind of ads, even though they probably recruit a very small number of people, putting those ads in front of the eyes of millions of people gives the automatic patina of, uh, of a problem. You know, it kind of validates that there's a problem, even if a problem doesn't exist. And I know we've talked on the podcast about the, the basis of the of the of the claims with IARC and others. Can we go back to even just this, about glyphosate itself? As a as a pediatrician, or as a physician, and someone who studied toxicology, what do we know about the relative toxicology and the toxicological profile, the pharmacology of um, of glyphosate as a compound and its relative risk? Well, it's interesting. I had a friend of mine who's a toxicologist, uh, Bill Banner, that runs the Oklahoma Poison Control Center. He calls glyphosate the toxicologist neutrino. Now, if you know about <laughs> physics, <laughs> neutrinos are uncharged particles that travel through space. They go right through you. you. Millions of them per second go through your body. Nothing happens at all. And so what he's really saying is glyphosate is pretty unique from the toxicology standpoint. The glyphosate you absorb is not broken down or metabolized. It simply comes out very rapidly in the urine. Uh, and pretty much nothing happens. If you look in animals at the acute toxicity the, by giving large doses, uh, it, it's less toxic in animals than table salt. You know, it, it's far less toxic than the nicotine in cigarettes. Um, and, and as pesticidal molecules go, um, it's almost ideal in the sense that it targets an, a pathway, a metabolic pathway in plants. That pathway does not exist in the human cells or in, in the cells of mammals. So it's very safe for earthworms, for birds, for human beings. Um, it has been looked at very carefully now over more than 40 years. Uh, it, it has a very good toxicology profile, uh, and we have the advantage with six or seven different global 
registrants, people who make and, and register the product, uh, before it came off patent uh, around 2000, they all had to generate their own data packages. So we have not one, we have seven full data packages. Uh, and if you look, for instance, at the cancer data, yes, you will see things in one study or another study. Um, you may see a, a, a tumor that seems to be increased at one dose, but you have to remember that for every positive study, you have another 13 or 14 studies out there, you know, seven sets of data, two species, you've got, you know, for every one study where you see a tumor association, you have 13 or 14 other studies out there that don't show the same thing. The most important thing in science is to be able to reproduce your work, as you know, uh, and with glyphosate, there is nothing reproducible in terms of cancer risk. Yeah, that's a really important point because that's one that's coming up more and more in the last few weeks even is, well, these you know studies where you see this association, which still is, is um, always good to clarify for this audience, which tends to be scientific enthusiasts, is that it's an association, meaning that you're seeing it, uh, it, that um, some sort of uh, correlation between the occurrence of a disorder or some sort of a, a physiological tr- change, in this case a tumor, and the use of a product. Yet you still then have to uh, talk about dose response. You have to talk about time course. You have to look at all the other um, aspects of this, plus be reproducible in multiple organisms or in multiple trials in order to really validate that association. And that isn't happening with respect to this. And I'm glad that you mentioned that because this is always really interesting to me, is if this was true, wouldn't it seem like it would be in the interest of the other... Uh, big agricultural companies, the Dow's, the BASF's, and others, to really bring this to the fore to put you guys out of business. Well, it probably would be of interest. I, we 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 try not to work that way. Yeah. Uh, we try not to throw stones. And, and remember that the way pesticides are regulated. Uh, you know, the, the uses, the applications, the safety equipment are specified in such a way that you can use a compound safely. I mean, we take the most toxic material known to all humanity, which is the you know, botulinum A toxin, you know, and we sell it as Botox and we in- inject it into people. And if you do it right, it's fine, and if you get it wrong, you can be paralyzed for six months. Yes. And, and, and so, uh, you know, appropriate use uh, allows many different kinds of chemicals to be used. Um, but I think what's remarkable here um, is not that the chemical companies aren't throwing stones at each other. I mean, businesses try not to do that. You don't see one car manufacturer trying to sell their car by telling you. Uh, to be afraid of the other manufacturers' vehicles. What's really striking right now is you're seeing the organic food industry using exactly that kind of fear-mongering and stone-throwing. They may discover that they live in a glass house fairly quickly. I I think that uh, some recent 
uncovering of, of, of some of the international sources of supposedly organic materials, some of the scandals around some of the large dairy manufacturers who claim to be organic but don't meet those criteria. Um, I, I think they're going to find themselves in, in a glass house very rapidly, but at the moment they continue to throw stones. Uh, they were to they weren't able to successfully throw them, or very successfully throw them, at biotech over the past four or five years. Uh, the GMO conversation has begun to settle down. They found that they can go back to the 60s, as it were, and 70s, uh, and rile up the fears around pesticides and crop protection technology as a way of getting at GMOs. So that's become their modus operandi. They try and market their product by disparaging ours. Which is really unfortunate because it, in, a, in many ways there are few products that are better suited for an organic cultivation or organic production scenario than, say, biotech crops that could have their own inherent crop protection from weeds or uh, uh, insects. You know? Exactly. And, and you know, in, in a way, even though glyphosate is a synthetic compound, it's kind of also very in keeping with many of the ideals, or at least the claimed ideals, of many of the organic producers I know. They want low toxicity, low impact on the environment, things with few collateral effects. It seems to be the perfect profile for that particular compound. In all honesty, it has a better toxicology profile than a number of the pesticides that are used in organic agriculture, and they do use pesticides. Mm -hmm. um, they have naturally sourced pesticides, um, but that doesn't mean that they're non-toxic. They used arsenic compounds for many, many years. As far as I know, in the U.S., all of those registrations have been canceled um, because of toxicity and cancer risk. They continue to use copper sulfate That's as right. an example, which is substantially more toxic acutely than glyphosate. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I say they, they, they're in a glass house and they need to be just a bit careful when they throw stones. Yeah, the, the uh, copper sulfate runoff from tomato packing plants, both organic and, uh, and conventional, is a toxic waste. And uh, it's considered toxic waste because of the concentration of copper. Exactly. And so it, it is a concern, especially in my state, where we're sitting a few meters above a water table, where, uh, you know, 10 pounds per acre of copper sulfate protects your plants from, in both organic and conventional, by the way, um, from things like, uh, you know, xanthomonas, wilts, and other bacterial problems. But it still is a, is a formable input and one that would be wonderful to cut. And now you have this BS2 tomato, which can uh, protect itself, um, and you get tremendously higher yields, uh, especially when bacterial pressure is higher. So here's something for, that would be ideal for organic production. That's something that they have de facto eliminated. And maybe, maybe that'll change. <laughs> but, but I guess we'll see. Um, we're sitting with uh, Dr. Dan Goldstein. He's a distinguished science fellow uh, at the Monsanto Company in St. Louis. And this is the Talking Biotech Podcast. We'll be back in just a moment. The Talking Biotech Podcast is approaching a podcast milestone. The 100th episode. The reviews are energizing and the wide listenership spurs us on to continue to produce improved and compelling podcast material into the next 100 episodes. At this rate, we're projected to reach the 1,000th episode in November of 2034. Now, based on your emails, the 100th episode will be an interview with Dr. Kevin Folta, the originator and one of the Talking Biotech hosts. 
If you have questions, please mail them to talkingbiotech at gmail.com or submit them on Twitter at Talking Biotech. The special episode will be hosted by Chris Barbie. Most of all, thank you for listening. Thank you for telling a friend and helping us share the wonderful stories of science that can help people and help the planet. So we're back on the Talking Biotech podcast. Um, we're here today from in Baltimore, Maryland at the American Society of Animal Sciences meeting, and I'm sitting with Dr. Dan Goldstein of the Monsanto Company. I'm someone who I've read a lot of your stuff online, and I've really appreciated the perspective you bring. Um, he's here with me. He's a pediatrician before anything else and now works primarily fielding issues and discussing uh, issues around glyphosate. And so let, we talked a little bit about the risk, about how this is the neutrino of the chemical world. Um, what about exposure? Because this is the other half of the equation. You know, sharks are a pretty important risk. I mean, you could get killed by a shark, but probably not sitting in the Baltimore Convention Center. So it's a question of the risk versus the hazard, you know, and how, how much, how realistic it is. So what, what do we know about glyphosate risk? So in terms of... Uh, of Hazard, we've already talked about the fact that it has a very good safety profile. I, in my opinion, there's no evidence of cancer. But if you believe that there may be a hazard, we can have a talk about risk. And that really comes down to a talk about exposure. So when we regulate pesticides, we, we look at the animal data. We find a dose that has no toxic effect in animals. We add a 100-fold safety factor on top of that, and that becomes an acceptable level of intake. Uh, If you look at actual exposure to glyphosate in the general population, uh, what you see see actually... um, is uh, is a fairly simple problem uh, because, as I mentioned earlier, glyphosate is not metabolized. It's not broken down in the body. Anything that gets absorbed by the body comes back out in urine, comes out in urine quite quickly. Um, and, and so by looking at urinary levels across the general population, um, you can actually get a, a very accurate bead on how much glyphosate people take in. Now, it took many years for analytical chemistry to get yes. good enough to measure levels that low, actually, yes. and that's one of the reasons we haven't had a lot of urinary data until recently when we can measure parts per billion in urine. But if you do that, um, what you find, if you can find any glyphosate at all, uh, are levels th- that translate into an exposure that is 10,000 times less than the current U.S. allowable daily intake Europe will probably change theirs. They're re-registering glyphosate now. Um, uh, it, w- that would put us roughly 3,000 times less than, than the allowable daily intake uh, for Europe. And the U.S. may eventually harmonize with that for convenience as well. Um, but the reality of it is, at the moment, you know, the exposures we're seeing are 10,000 times less than the allowable daily intake which is 100 times less than a dose that has no effect in animals. So you're now a million times less than a dose that does nothing in seven sets of studies in, in various animal species. Um, I don't understand why we're worried 
about this. I mean, if you look at chemical hazards in the environment and other significant hazards to human health and and, and safety, um, this this is not a problem that, frankly, is even worth thinking about. We're, we're nowhere near levels of concern. Well, that was one of the, uh, I don't know if you caught this online, but when they made the claim that there were um, one thousand parts per trillion, so one part per billion uh, glyphosate in in wine, which has uh, 13 million parts per billion of a known carcinogen called ethanol, which is alcohol. And so here you have, which is here you have a legitimate public health concern. Um, The amount of money that's spent on alcohol-related disease and disorders and uh, social aspects of drunk driving and other things. Here you have a legitimate concern, and they're talking about the trace elements that, in this case, would be probably billions of times lower than any dose that does nothing. Exactly. <laughs> so it, it, it takes the focus. But, and, that, and that's what's, uh, what's so interesting about this is they, uh, where would we, and, and uh, have people looked at products, like food products, final food products, and actually measured levels of glyphosate and eggs. I can't find it in publication, but have they ever looked at, say, something like, you know, a box of cornflakes? Or, you know, I mean, where would this exposure come from is maybe my question. It, it would appear in the U.S. and from the data we have in Germany that it most likely comes from residues in various grains, uh, in which I would include, you know, corn, soy, probably the two larger sources. Um, it sees enough use in agriculture that you will see low-level residues in wheat and, and, and other grains as well. And that would seem to be uh, where most of the glyphosate exposure for humans come from, keeping in mind that when I say most of, we're talking about most of an incredibly small right. exposure relative to acceptable daily intake. Um, we don't have a lot of data. Uh, the FDA and EPA do market basket surveys. They haven't spent a lot of time on glyphosate. One reason for that is because it's so water-soluble, it requires a totally separate analytical method, so it's very expensive to do it. But the other reason that we haven't collected that data is we know what the human exposure is. So you know, there's been a lot of pressure for EPA to collect more data and FDA to collect more data on glyphosate in foods. A number of groups have published data in that arena. Some of it, uh, we believe, may be inaccurate, but others' data is probably valid. But it's important to remember that we have the urinary data to tell us what the overall exposure is. That's right. So, you know... FDA and EPA are only interested in getting data that is important for public health and only interested in getting data that will change their regulatory paradigm. They could invest millions in analyzing glyphosate, but we already know that the human exposure in the U.S. is 10,000 times less than the daily intake. So why would you go spend $50 million on a non-problem? Yeah, right, and it's exactly, uh, the way I always thought about this before was, and I love the idea about since we know what's in urine, we know what is being uh, taken in. But to work it backwards from the farmer's field, that if you apply, uh, I think I figured it out to be 69 milligrams per square meter, and how much that square meter would produce that if every molecule of glyphosate ended up in the final product, 
you would have to consume something like 2,200 kilograms of soy or 2,200 <laughs> kilograms of whatever in order to reach those thresholds. It really just shows that since you're not putting it, any, you're not putting a amount that could be a hazard in the first place. So why would you bother monitoring for hazardous effects? And I think that's the way that I always looked at it. Well, that's exactly true. And the reason for much of this monitoring, frankly, is to drive the public fear. Uh, we would all like to think that our bodily fluids are entirely pristine, but they aren't. Well, mine aren't. And they never were. <laughs> they never were. I mean, food and, and all of biology is fundamentally nothing but chemistry. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and in fact, uh, you know, we, we, we know from the registration data and could predict roughly uh, how much glyphosate would end up in, in, in human beings. And what we're finding is pretty close to what we expected when it was registered 40 years ago. Yeah, and that's, that's, and that's another big part of the whole fear-mongering angle is, you know, well, we detected it in urine. You know, when the folks who say that they detect it, they claim to detect it, probably mostly using this ELISA, uh, this uh, competitive ELISA technique, which we discussed quite a bit, I think, in episode 30. But um, that's where you would want it. I mean, these are water-soluble molecules that that don't accumulate in the body that would pass right through. And so the small amounts that are taken in are quickly eliminated from the body with no physiological consequence. And that's why, and, and that's another really important part of the chemistry of this molecule, which makes it intriguing to me that this would be something that someone would be against. Yeah, it, it's a very interesting phenomenon, and it just preys on people's general fears of, of things in the body. Um, I, my favorite comparison actually is from an article several years ago in Germany. Uh, you know, in, in Europe, they have a water standard that applies to all pesticides of, of one tenth of a part per billion. It, it's not risk based, it's just standard all across the board. So it applies to everything, including glyphosate, because glyphosate is a, is a pesticide. Um, and, and so uh, one of the newspapers gave a lot of coverage to the fact that. that in Germany, urine does not meet the drinking water standard. <laughs> now, why would anybody expect their urine to meet the drinking water standard? I don't know, but the only thing I could conclude is be very careful drinking yellow foamy beverages in Germany. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, they're high in many carcinogens, as yes. discussed earlier. You know, part of the reason we like them, I suppose. So, when we look at all of this discussion around glyphosate, around an herbicide. It doesn't really speak to the major problem that these folks had, which was, you know, we were afraid of the genetic engineering, you know, the, the, the seeds themselves and the plants themselves and the products that come from them. And why do you think it makes more sense? Why do you think that the strategy has shifted? Why do you think that they're taking on the herbicide rather than the crops themselves? Well, it's important to remember the intimate relationship between the crops and pesticides. So obviously you've got Roundup Ready or glyphosate tolerant plants and they were designed so that glyphosate could be used in conjunction with them. Uh, Because of glyphosate's very good safety profile, it's a good choice to do that pairing. Um, And I think, honestly, uh, as we mentioned earlier, throwing rocks at genetically modified organisms, at GMOs, genetically modified crops, just isn't getting the results that some of the opponents to this technology would like to see. It's becoming increasingly apparent that you get better yields with far fewer pesticide and labor inputs uh, using this type of technology. 
It offers tremendous promise and it actually offers improved sustainability because the number one criteria in my mind for sustainability in agriculture is controlling the amount of acreage you need to cultivate and the way to do that is to get high yields. So, you know, they're unable to really push back on genetic technology. They've gone after glyphosate as a proxy. They're, yeah. they're going after this because it is a way they can get at the technology by going after people's fears and concerns about pesticides that date back to the 60s and 70s. So a question to your toxicology expertise. All right, now, here's a hypothetical. I'm in Reno, Nevada, and I'm spraying glyphosate. And it's a, a relatively safe, low-toxicity um, product if used as mentioned on the label. Now, I cross the border over into California, and that same compound now is uh, deemed carcinogenic. <laughs> What's going on there? Well, uh, you know, this is an interesting game. Again, it goes back to what I think is is an organized attempt at fear-mongering. Um, so California EPA looked at glyphosate several years ago, and California also determined that glyphosate is not a carcinogen. But, of course, California has this peculiar beast called Prop 65, and Prop 65 says you have to label anything that meets certain criteria, and one of the criteria that they list is IARC. So if you meet uh, IARC's criteria, as it were, or I really should say if you get classified, rightly or wrongly, by IARC as a carcinogen, uh, that will drive labeling under Proposition 65. Um, and so we have this really interesting debate now going on. Um, you know, some of the media tries to portray this as Monsanto simply trying to quash uh, labeling under Prop 65. But look at the situation. You know, they want to label it as a carcinogen when the state of California's own EPA determined that it had no risk of cancer. When our federal EPA determined that it had no risk of cancer, and when all the other regulatory agencies around the world, including three-fourths of the World Health Organization, everybody other than IARC has said, no risk of cancer. It's wrong. It doesn't belong on the label. Right. It's as simple as that. Mm-hmm. And this is about getting labeling of appropriate hazards driven by quality science. That's what this is about. Well, and that's the funny part is that I, IARC doesn't do science. I mean, they're not a testing organization. They read, they review the literature, and they they haven't they haven't actually done the experiments. They're they're looking at uh, a number of studies, as, as I recall, uh, a case control study from two thousand and three was one of their major points of, uh, which basically is a survey that says what diseases do you have in your family and what products do you use, and then they put the two together, and then a follow up study which was a stronger scientific power in 2008 didn't affirm that finding yet they still made use that as a basis plus some claims of from in vitro data and other other things so it really was rather a tenuous assessment and completely contrary to what everybody who actually did testing found so yeah okay well so thank you very much to dr dan goldstein thank you very much for spending the time with us if people wanted to follow you are there any places in social media where you hang a hat I, I am uh, out there on Facebook, uh, and I'm out there on, on Twitter as well. It's uh, at Dr. Dan underscore biotech. 
Okay, Dr. Tim Biotech. <laughs> well, thank you very much for joining me, and uh, have a really nice conference. We'll see you later. Thanks, you too. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Please send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to talkingbiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review on iTunes and recommend this podcast to a friend. More downloads and reviews raise the visibility of this podcast and help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at collabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.